This is Film Tank. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. We're going to make film history. Can you say that again? Just the way you say it. Baby, it's time to lose their head. They won't know what they're looking at, but why they like it, but they'll know they want it. Hey there, everyone, and welcome in to episode 250 of Film Tank. Wow. Woo. I know, it's very exciting. 250. <laughs> As per usual, Alex Diekman here with you, along with my trusted co-host, Nick Cheney. Oh, trusted? Well, I can't wait till I break that. <laughs> <laughs> Also with us is our good friends, Anna Bodizadu and Sam Shimura. Hello. Hey. Okay, <laughs> now listeners, guess who is who? <laughs> <sighs> Are we going to leave it so that it's kind of like a, a Dora thing where it's like I'm... super quiet and you like feel yeah, the eyes of the like character on you, you know? Mm-hmm. Hey, and then it's with the swipe or no swiping. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Uh, we're we're going to get into it, obviously, because of what we're talking about. Is we are going to be doing this episode on the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, but just since I just watched uh, Return of the King a couple of nights ago, or a few nights ago, whenever it was, um, I love the climax of that film, and I'll obviously get more into that. Yeah, what what are I, you doing here? <laughs> what? No, it's just like you. It's so funny because you're like setting something that's not seemingly Lord of the Rings rated uh, related, but you keep going. And but you know, when I watch Return of the King, not that we're gonna talk about that now. Oh, okay. No, I was. It was a joke. I meant like where's oh, this okay. going? Like, okay. I no, mean, uh, like, you 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 brought up the eye thing, and I just I don't know for <laughs> I don't know. Ah, shit. I feel like, uh, and I'm sure this is part of the actual story, because that makes sense, but um, the Eye of Sauron is kind of bullshit, because he's supposed (laughs) to be, like, desperate on getting the ring, and the ring is right within his grasp, and yet when the warriors show up, he's like, total attention over here. I don't know. So, probably could have mentioned that later, but whatever. I've got some thoughts. (laughs) <laughs> okay so anyways <laughs> lord of the rings uh the trilogy directed by peter jackson uh that was released in theaters between 2001 and 2003 obviously based on the texts from uh j why am i missing yeah J.R. tolkien uh classic uh books from falling apart here the year that they were released 1954 to 55 yep Mm -hmm. 
Yep, I should do research. That's okay. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, these were released in the early 2000s and star a slew of people. Uh, again, not prepared. This is going great. Elijah Wood? Yeah, I was going to say, star a slew of people, including Elijah Wood, Ian McClellan, Vigo Mortensen, Sean Astin, Liv Tyler, Kate Blanchett, John Reese davies Christopher Lee, Billy Boyd, Dominic Monaghan, Orlando Bloom, Hugo Weaving, Sean Beam, and Andy Serkis. So, uh, most people probably are somewhat aware of the story of the Lord of the Rings, especially if they are listening to this episode. But the story is set in the fictional world of Middle-earth. The films follow the hobbit Frodo Baggins as he and the Fellowship embark on a quest to destroy the One Ring to ensure the destruction of its master, the Dark Lord Sauron. The Fellowship eventually splits up and Frodo continues the quest with his loyal companion Sam and they meet the treacherous Gollum. Meanwhile, Aragorn, heir in exile to the throne of Gondor, alongside Legolas, Gimli, Boromir, Merry, and Pippin, and also the wizard Gandalf, unite to rally the free, pe- to, uh, the free peoples of Middle-earth in the War of the Ring, okay, in order to aid Frodo by distracting Sauron's attention. <laughs> That's their whole goal, is to distract them. Good stuff. <laughs> hey, over here! <laughs> Pretty much! That's pretty much exactly what that was. So that's fine. So, I, um, this has been on my list for a long time for us to do. And it's not even because I love the Roller Rings, because I did not see these in theaters uh, when I was in high school. Um, I was not, I always was turned off by the idea of seeing them. I thought that they sounded super nerdy, which they definitely are. Um, But, Um, My wife is a huge fan of both the books and also the films. So she, although did not get me to read the books, um, she did get me to see the films after we were dating for a while. And over time, I've definitely become a fan. So uh, we'll start out giving everyone's first impressions about the three films as a whole. And then we're just going to do a group discussion about the Lord of the Rings three films, uh, which are The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and the return of the king so who would want to start us off i can go after you thanks for taking the bullet nick all right (laughs) pew pew ah so unlike uh alex i did actually see these in theaters because i read i read the hobbit when i was in kindergarten (laughs) and then uh i was a very ferocious little reader uh and then I did end up reading The Fellowship of the Ring after I saw The Fellowship of the Ring movie. But what was interesting was I had read The Hobbit and liked it. And that is the one that's aimed more at children than the other three. And um, so when I went to see it, the movie, I remember thinking that I knew this kind of world because I knew about, you know, hobbits and Middle Earth and orcs and all these all these things that were introduced, and it really probably was my first introduction to high fantasy, as it well is for a lot of people. But what was kind of fascinating was when I went to see The Fellowship of the Ring, I did not know what 
the that story was about or really just the whole trilogy of books so it was like i kind of told alex earlier this week like when i went and saw it i had like all of the backstory and none of the spoilers because you know i kind of known what uh the ring was at the very least i knew who had it i knew uh you know where it was and so on and so forth so it was very interesting when you're like 10 years old and like seeing a whole movie that you kind of already inherently understand but is like still completely fresh so that was a very i'll always kind of remember that experience in general um i watched all three in theaters the third one in particular is the one i have the most vivid memory of because i remember it being the longest <laughs> in theaters and it uh certainly even you know almost 20 years later it still uh feels the longest which is not necessarily a complaint but it is a hurdle so to speak um and i gotta say i probably haven't watched these since maybe i I remember i watched them when they came in the theater and then when they came out on dvd i probably watched them in heavy rotation for about a year maybe two at the most but it did quickly kind of die off as my interest in revisiting them so this week, um, it's very weird and fortuitous that Alex had chosen to do uh, this trilogy this week because randomly I bought a fancy new TV, uh, not for this podcast by any means, but it coincided with the fact that the new UHD uh, ultra high definition versions and restorations of these films came out this week. And... I had seen The Fellowship on Blu-ray like two or three years ago, or at least part of it, and I thought it looked really bad, like they had clearly not done anything to it. Whatever, it's all getting nerdy here. But sitting down to watch these in today's technology uh, and with actual Peter Jackson uh, in the editing bay touching them up where it doesn't look different than what it did, but it does look like the best possible version, uh, but not in a crappy George Lucas way was like watching them like it was 17 years ago and it was a very unique experience um these films still hold up as impressive spectacle even when the CGI can be dodgy it's still always fluid and always interesting visually so that's kind of what I care the most about uh it can have that kind of uncanny valley effect sometimes particularly when they're doing you know, the, what do you call it, trying to depict the proportional differences between the size of hobbits and the other people where they're clearly superimposing the images of these actors versus them on a different scale. But honestly, all that kind of practical use of computer effects, it's still really well done today. And not only that, but I watched the first hour randomly of the first Hobbit movie about an hour before this podcast started, because i never seen any of them, I still haven't, and it's just night and day, it's the same director, but everything was CGI, like all the dwarves are CGI, and I just don't understand, I mean, not the actors themselves, but it's just all motion capture, and all touched up via computer, and it's just really come a long way to what a production used to look like. Uh, Peter, he, Peter Jackson didn't have his heart in those movies. He says he, he did, and yet he oof. wanted to make it even longer. So really, I think he's <laughs> just crying wolf uh, at this point. I, I don't know, man. I mean, I I saw all those in the theater, um, and the only one, in my opinion, that's genuinely good is the second one. Um, the third film, The Battle of the Five Armies, was a huge misfire 
Um, the title alone so, sounds like a bad yeah. idea. Just yeah. being fair. Yeah. No, it was um, it was obviously disappointing that it was, and that you know, it's a three part trilogy based on a pretty short. Book, it's based on so. a single book. It's not like what he did with this original trilogy, where he made a decent uh, trilogy out of them. Also, filmed a lot of stuff that never got. Like, it was the perfect balance, and then he had all that stuff that he filmed that he couldn't use, but then that even got a shelf life on home video, and I remember my own uh, friends back then geeking out about the extended editions and whatnot, and while I never actually sat down to watch them, uh, I just remember that used to be, like, common rotation for them, so, I mean, it was all kind of the perfect amount of indulgence back then, um, where now, it, I don't know, it, I'll probably finish it, but it's gonna be a chore, but anyway... Uh, but the Lord of the Rings, I to, to get to the movie themselves, I think they all three still hold up, and that's kind of an impressive feat in and of itself. I I genuinely do kind of think what I believe at least one person uh, besides myself also thinks on this podcast. No spoilers, Alex. Uh, but that the third one is the best, and I think for me the reason why that is is I think. The first two are definitely good, but the third one is almost, uh, it's, it's got this weird feeling to it where it's almost stretched a little too thin, and I actually think it worked and it's benefit for that. There is a lot of quieter moments in the third movie, like even before the denouement, but actually throughout the entire meat of the movie, uh, there's a lot of quieter moments, there's a lot of very inspired pairings because that's a lot of what the structure of these uh three installments are are basically switching up who's going on which part of the adventure with who uh and which you know geographical location they're at so you can really start to get suckered into which one's your favorite based on where somebody is who they're with and uh you know which leg of the journey they're on but for me this series is never better um in the third movie when a lot more people uh, have a lot more emotional character beats to go through, and it's not even necessarily because they're getting to an ending, but because they're finally, after kind of battling out, particularly in uh, the Two Towers, um, they have a lot more time before the final battle to actually sit around and uh, kind of connect with each other and lament about what's been lost and what's been gained throughout the entire journey. And I think specifically uh, the entire franchise is really never better uh than the entire sequence that takes place over is it uh is it gondor where the battle is taking place where um john noble's character has finally lost it um or is that somewhere else i don't know i'm i'm gonna mess up all the names as far as locations and uh tertiary characters but that whole battle scene uh is basically the second to last major battle because it's not the one that's actually at uh mordor but it's uh whatever but um in that scene you get a lot of payoff to uh things like you know pippin's storyline and um you get to see gandalf being badass and you get to see um a lot of other great stuff the ghost army come on yeah. man the ghost army <laughs> is great um uh, what do you call it you got uh mary uh and um the elf who likes Aragorn, <laughs> but I forget her name. Um, Ewan, yes. that's her name. Ewan, yes. 
you get those mm-hmm. two kind of partnering up and showing their value. I mean, that's kind of what the whole movie is all about. It's about looking. I mean, I mean, that's for... a that's a 2003 film that yeah. had a line of "No man can destroy me," and then a woman stabs him, and a hobbit finishes the job off. I yep. mean, I mean it's unfortunately, pretty... that was ahead of its time. <laughs> it was ahead of its time, and uh, didn't wasn't very wasn't as influential as it should have been. <laughs> Um, so yes, that's unfortunate, but, but that's what makes it all the more powerful. Cause I genuinely kind of forgot about some of those littler moments. And, um, so yeah, I mean, obviously we can get into the granular details when everybody's gone, but overall, I think that the first two movies are remarkably good for how much they rely on exposition. Um, I don't think that they're great, but as pure f- cinematic spectacle, on that level, they're fantastic. Um, it just makes me... Um, uh, how they go about what they're about, basically, makes me only want to view these maybe once every five to ten years because they're kind of exhausting in the way that they, uh, you know, go about uh, moving down that trajectory. Not because it can really be any other way, because obviously this is high fantasy in a nutshell, and this definitely set the gold standard. I mean, Game of Thrones essentially borrowed... not the books, uh, although obviously George R.R. R. Martin <laughs> was influenced by Lord of the Rings, but the show for sure was basically had its template already nailed down because of Lord of the Rings as to how to visually showcase all of this, uh, except they turned the brightness uh, level all the way down to zero for some reason. And um, But yeah, I think these are three very good movies, with the third one being one of the best emotional conclusions to a big uh, blockbuster franchise that we've seen in a long time. Yeah. So, uh, I guess I'll, I'll go next. Um, I had watched this series. Um, I've seen it quite a few times now. Uh, always watched it with uh, my wife, Emily. We watched this probably about two years ago. Uh, and it was at that point that I put this on my master list of, uh, films that I'd love to do on the podcast at some point and figured that, uh, it would be a good time now for our 250th episode, definitely a, a, a milestone episode for us uh, to do this trilogy as this, I remember when I was in high school was pretty, pretty huge, especially in that era when we didn't have uh, Marvel, we didn't have other films that had constant sequels and trilogies and four films and Fast and Furious 9 uh, and things like that. So the series was but never took the time for it. Finally did Hey, um, pretty early in these films. Okay. Can you hear me? Yep. Oh, sorry. Yes. Uh, I lost my connection uh, probably about 20-ish seconds ago. Um, Okay. I'm trying to think of the last thing I remember you saying before I was able to reconnect was basically you remember these were being big things in high school. Um, okay so yeah sorry about that just so so no that's okay so so am i good to start 
from there then, or, yeah, let me or are you still? Yeah, no, we're still recording. It'll just be a big bling, nothing in that spot, so. Okay. All right. Sorry about that. Yep. So we're good now, though. We are. Okay. So when I saw this, uh, you know, I knew this in high school from people I went to high school with and heard all about it and always was somewhat intrigued, but never interested in seeing these films or, or doing anything with the books as I still have not read any of uh, the books uh, written by Tolkien. So finally took the plunge uh, after I met uh, Emily many years ago when uh, she finally showed them to me, I think pretty early on uh, when we were dating, probably about 10 years ago or so. And I was a fan at start, but my fandom of this series has only grown over the years. Uh, I, I really like the story here. I really like the characters. Um, and I, I really do genuinely like all three films. I think they all have similar, similar structure, similar, uh, parts to them, similar storylines. Uh, and, and they do a lot of the same things throughout them. Uh, but they are somewhat unique in the way that every film has a different mode, almost like the original Star Wars trilogy where Empire Strikes Back definitely has a bit different vibe than Return of the Jedi. Uh, this series is much the same way where, you know, the Two Towers is basically Sauron getting somewhat control of everything. Uh, and that at the end, we, we see a light at the end of the tunnel uh, for the Hobbits and the rest of the Fellowship. So... I'm uh, I'm a fan of, of of this trilogy. I really enjoyed the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, every time I've watched it, it's not my favorite of the three, but I I really enjoyed it. Uh, Sean Bean is fantastic in the Fellowship of the Ring, and, and gives a a as per usual great performance. And also is someone who is known for his death scenes in films. Uh, has an epic death scene in the Fellowship of the Ring. So I always find that fantastic. I always love the first 30 minutes or so uh, with all of the scenes at the Shire, everything happening with Bilbo Baggins uh, and the rest of the uh, residents of the Shire. And we find out about the ring, uh, the opening scene of this film before we come to present day in the Shire is one of my favorite tellings of past events uh, in any film. Um, the narration by Kate Blanchett is fantastic. Um, I do know that there were numerous choices that they had or thought of to read the narration at the beginning of the film, and they decided on her, and I think it was perfect. Um, seeing everything from that initial battle and seeing the elves, some of which are still around uh, in this time period, including um, Hugo Weaving's character Elrond, uh, and, and the whole backstory is just so good in that opening scene of The Fellowship of the Ring. And a lot of moments of, of that film are good, as that is when we really do see this group together before they fan off. And it's such a good, such a good place to start because you have this group of characters and you get to learn about what drives them and learn about how they feel about each other and establish that bond together. And then when they are split off, you really do feel it is genuine in the two towers and in the return of the king that they do care about each other that they do care about what has happened 
and what is happening to the other characters, whether it is worrying about Frodo and Sam or Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli. Uh, These characters are important and they're influential to the other members of the Fellowship and that plays out throughout the entire trilogy. Uh, In the the two towers, we obviously see a pretty major introduction to Andy Serkis' motion capture work as Gollum, uh, which is fantastic and was definitely revolutionary uh, at the time and has led to a pretty pretty seismic shift uh, in how a lot of work is done with computer graphics. Unfortunately, in some instances, as Nick alluded to, uh, the Hobbit trilogy is just littered with CGI, including landscapes, which is total garbage. Um, And unfortunately, that's become a little closer to the norm in a lot of films in this era. But uh, in The Lord of the Rings, we do see so many beautiful landscapes and uh, actual physical effects that are interspliced with CGI, which is CGI at its absolute peak being used sparingly and to improve actual physical effects and physical actions that are happening on screen. Um, It's when it's at its very best and it happens throughout this film. Uh, I'll agree with Nick that the hobbits are so awkward at times. Um, Them standing and bowing at the end of Return of the King uh, during the coronation of Aragorn is almost hard to look at because it looks so bad. Um, It's not like Tony's mother in The Sopranos, but it's pretty awkward. (laughs) So um, I I like The Two Towers. I wouldn't say it's my least favorite of the three. Um, I do know it's quite a few people's favorite, but um, I I do enjoy it, although it does feel a bit like just a bridge between uh, The Fellowship and The Return of the King. Um, I always have loved numerous storylines in that film, uh, including the introduction of Gandalf's uh, returning character of Gandalf the White, and also pretty much everything that happens in that film with uh, Theoden, Thauden, Theoden, whatever his name is, uh, the character played by Bernard Hill, um, who has been basically bewitched uh, early on in the film by that creepy snake character who uh, my wife always... Grima? Yeah, she's she's not a fan of uh, of him. <laughs> for obvious reasons, uh, but a very interesting uh, I agree with is. her. Yes, no, he's creepy. Uh, Question. And, yeah, that, and, and, what? I was going to say, that's the character that reminded me of Tommy Wiseau. Is that correct? Yeah, that's probably right. Yeah. Yeah, okay. he's, although I think he's, he's probably smarter than Tommy Wiseau, but that's okay. <laughs> okay, because I was like, when I was watching them, I was like, when did Tommy Wiseau show up in Lord of the Rings? I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just. Oh, hi, Mark. This <laughs> phone. <laughs> well, hi, Mark. Yeah. I did not take uh, it. I did not. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. And then obviously we have the Battle of Helm's Deep in the uh, Two Towers as well, which I think is 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 quite a bit of fun, uh, especially for a battle scene. Uh, Return of the King is, is Nick. Uh, kind of uh, spoiled a little bit is definitely my favorite. I think it is supremely wonderful work. Um, I, I don't know. There's no metric for this. Uh, It's certainly in the running, but it's definitely potentially the top in, in terms of the list. And again, this is hard to judge, but in my opinion, in terms of mainstream blockbusters, it may be the most successful film of all time. 
Um, again, that's really hard to judge, but in terms of critical response, uh, box office, awards, and just the way that that film has aged over time, um, that is one of the most successful films uh, I think that there is out there, uh, and definitely a, a film that the filmmakers, Peter Jackson, um, and obviously he never saw it, but uh, maybe even Tolkien would be very proud of because of all of the effort that was put into it. Um, and, and just the, the takeaway that all the viewers have had of that film at the time when it was released and over the years, um, a really just exceptional film that has so many different moments and so many different ways that the film actually weaves through different genres. Uh, we have romance in the film. We have suspense. We have really, not the only, but really, I think the only film in the trilogy that really delves into comedy throughout it is there's a lot of lighthearted humor throughout the first hour of the film. Uh, a lot of it's delivered by the fantastic performance of Ian McKellen as Gandalf. And we see just the highlights of this series in the return of the king and everything that it possibly could be uh, with every aspect of Gollum and Frodo and Sam and also Aragorn uh, and everything happening with Elrond and the rest of the elves. And it's just, it's just wonderful filmmaking, well put together uh, all across all the films, fantastic score, even though uh, there's not too many beats to it as it's, pretty much the same song repeated every time with a couple of changes here and there, but it's so beautifully done. Um, and, and Emily definitely did remark that she absolutely loves the song that Pippin sings um, while he's being held captive by that creepy Stuart, who's definitely not a king, uh, Boromir's father, uh, when they're at Gondor. So by the way, random side note, um, Billy Boyd, who plays uh, Pippin, uh, who sings that song, actually sings a song that uh, goes on during the credits of the Battle of the Five Armies. And that is 100% the best part uh, of that film. And it sucks to say that, but it is really well done. And uh, if anybody has time to check that out, it's a really well done song and a song I've actually listened to time and time again. Uh, I can't remember what the name of it is off the top of my head, but if you get a chance to look it up, it's really well done uh, and a nice tie-in to the Lord of the Rings series. So uh, I've got many, many more thoughts on the three films and I'm really looking forward to us talking about everything that happens throughout the series and, and, and what we like and maybe dislike about parts of it. But um, I've become a huge fan of this series over the years, especially the final film. Um, it's excellent work, well executed and just really, really solid filmmaking. After you, Sam. All right, that sounds good. Um, kind of to piggyback off of what Alex had said. Um, so when these films came out, I was, I mean, I'll tell my age. Um, I was still in elementary slash middle school. Um, so I had not, <laughs> I had um, not quite gotten to that age of I can actually sit down and enjoy like a good high fantasy film. Um, 
But I do recall um, very distinctly my parents um, being very excited for these movies, um, especially my dad. Um, a side note is that my dad is not much of a reader. He really hasn't ever been. Um, but that man was able to and very much enjoyed reading all of the Lord of the Rings books, um, including The Hobbit, as well as um, any other side materials or um, I guess, uh, kind of appendices, um, that were ever written about it. Um, but did he really quick read any of the stuff that his son wrote? I don't know. I'm going to say no. Okay. Just curious. But... His son finished a manuscript he found, uh, of his dad's. Uh, his son, meaning oh. J.R. Tolkien's son, in case that wasn't clear, yeah. <laughs> uh, found an unfinished manuscript that I believe took place in Middle Earth, uh, and so his son finished it. I think it came out like three or four years ago. So, anyway, interesting. Maybe, I'll have to let him know about it. Yeah, maybe it could be a <laughs> he hasn't. I don't know. Or... Thanks for the hint. Anytime. Uh, <laughs> um, and I, I do recall my parents. Um, I know my parents had made uh, a point to actually go see these in theaters. Um, and I do recall maybe a, a few years later when I was just entering high school um, that we had put them on as, you know, they were just on a, one of those like TNT channels or something like that. Um, and... Man, that must that must be really long. Yeah, <laughs> Return of the King must be five hours on TNT. Oh my god, um, I. It's interesting because I always recall watching Two Towers and Return of the King the most. Like those are the two that I've caught either on TV or like that they've just randomly been on when I've like been by my parents or things like that. So when I sat down to watch the three films this week, um, I when I started watching the first one, I was like, I have no memory of this. Like, did I even watch this film to begin with? And I, I did. I definitely did because I recall like a, a few more scenes after like watching it for a while. Um, but I think something that has always drawn me into these films is how well of storytelling they do considering how intense, I guess, for lack of a better term, um, the um, world creation is of this, uh, of this entire series um, and how, I guess, concisely they're able to tell a story across these fil three films. And you can come at me with like, they're not concise. They're almost four hours long. Um, that's fine. Um, but I think compared to what they could potentially be, um, you could easily get trapped in like six hours and I would still watch every single minute of it. Um, there's something really beautiful about, um, I think you had mentioned it too, Alex, of the landscapes um, of these movies are just beautiful. Um, I think it was out in New Zealand or Australia, um, potentially even Iceland. I don't remember exactly where, um, but those, those these these films had a very very deep onset um, on location. Pardon me. Yeah. Uh, film filming schedule that that really did 
put the effort in having actual real places be the setting for what we're seeing on screen. And I think that makes a huge difference. I I only saw the first Hobbit one. I, I did not. I refused to see the other two, um, <laughs> mainly because of the conversation that's already been had about the CGI efforts. Um, so when I rewatched these three films, I was again in awe of how striking it is to see films actually being done on location um, or even just, you know, seeing that the, even if it's not expertly done, some of the CGI or like some of the effects, I know um, I was watching uh, Two Towers and my boyfriend had commented and was like, wow, look at that green screen work. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, considering when these films came out, um, they were, I would say, pretty expertly done. Um, and that, I think, has carried um, kind of a, a combination of of the time uh, that these films came out, but also um, just what, you know, Peter Jackson was trying to accomplish with this, that, you know, you can't have everything, either CGI at the time, uh, that would be wild, or um, you can't necessarily put real humans into all of these scenarios. You have to have a little bit more artistry with it. Um, well, and, and Andy Serkis um, and his directing uh, recently has been something that has left a lot to be desired. Uh, but um, his motion capture work, honestly, is is going to go down as, yeah. as, as really, really influential in terms of how um, that has has become a, a thing in in our in our world, and and obviously, as I mentioned earlier, it, it's been used uh, poorly uh, by a lot of people in this new era that we currently live in. Uh, but at yes. the time, <laughs> yeah, uh, at the time, um, people had not seen anything like that. Yeah, people had not seen someone that. Uh, really does look a little bit like the human being that is playing that character, but clearly uh, has been animated as well. So um, very much a very revolutionary moment in film in these films with Andy Serkis. And I think kind of to go along with that too, even just the costuming and makeup work of these films is incredible. Um, we've obviously seen like other films that have had intense um i guess world creation um so like i i think of mad max um and how you know there's that sort of costume work or makeup work um but i think there's something to be said that even how even after watching these films this many years after they debuted it's i was still amazed by the amount of detail and um preciseness of just costuming and makeup and oh my gosh the orcs and goblins are absolutely incredible um with special effects um and just overall i think these films kind of are a, a true tribute to at least trying to delve into the the wild world of high fantasy um it can be something that isn't for everyone that's for sure um 
But I think the way that all the narratives were braided together so beautifully, especially um, within Two Towers, I, I think, um, as well as Return of the King, um, those two are, they're not my favorites, um, <laughs> but I, I'm still partial to the first one, to Fellowship, uh, and then I would say uh, Return of the King um, are potentially tied um, just for the element of storytelling. Though I agree with Nick um, that Return of the King is very well done because you actually see that emotional arc of the characters and you kind of get to see that um, even with just the character development that those actors have finally you know, realized or have come to fruition of, you know, they've been this character for, you know, X amount of years now at this point because of all the filming time. Um, and they've finally been able to, you know, come into their own um, and really own their characters, um, which I think is is truly impeccable um, to, to see that growth across, uh, especially in that last one, but across the films in general is, is always comforting. So I, I think I'm a little winded from all of that at the moment, but <laughs> we can certainly um, delve into a few other um, components of the films as well. So I'll pass this on to you, Anna. All right. Um, okay. So um, I wasn't shy about admitting my disinterest of these films when Alex brought this up. And then I was like, okay, I'll watch them. So um, like Sam, I was, and Nick, um, I was quite, uh, I was still, you know, young elementary school, middle school when these films came out. Um, I mean, Harry Potter was like, they were a couple films deep at the time when these came out. And then when it came to award season and Lord of the Rings was up against Harry Potter for certain awards, Lord of the Rings always won. Um, <clears throat> so um, the reason I had a general disinterest in Lord of the Rings for a while is that, you know, I would see my parents watch them and first of all, I was too young to truly understand it. So I didn't really have an interest in wanting to sit down and try to see what was happening. And um, whenever I got older and I would say, oh, I just don't like Lord of the Rings. It's not for me. Um, the response was uh, usually not um, of an approachable one. So then that just kind of put me off uh, even more when that would come up in conversation. And then also a major thing, what kind of kept me away from them is that the orcs are scary and I just didn't want to watch them. Um, but, you know, I'm a big girl now. So I was like, let's just delve right into these. Um, and shout out to my boyfriend who is a fan of these films because I asked a million questions as we were um, watching all three of them. And had he not been there to uh, view these with me, I would have even less of an idea of what was truly happening. So sounds like he, we should have had Tim on instead. <laughs> yeah, instead. Yeah, I'll be sure to I'll be sure, I'll be sure to let him know. <laughs> um, I will say though, so he has a couple different versions on DVD, and for the first not even 20 minutes, we watched um Fellowship of the Ring in four by three. 
And it was, to me, it looked okay because I mean, I didn't care of the resolution. It looked just fine, but he was like, I can't stand it. We need a better version. And then that's what we ended up watching moving forward was like widescreen, which is how you should view any film. But I was like, to me, four by three looks just fine. This looks like it came out in the nineties, which isn't, is not too far removed. Anyway. I think, I think, I think Nick just died a little bit, by the way. So. <laughs> <laughs> this is okay. This is acceptable. <laughs> so um okay so i will say that having gotten older and have uh, having grown to appreciate film more as an art form and also um a technical uh evolution um especially you know from whenever we discuss films on the show from any era um it's always amazing to see what what is utilized in order to create uh, the final product and what ends up on screen. Um, so I will agree what everyone with what everyone has said here. Truly fantastic the amount of effort that went into making sure that what the audience sees on screen is truly where all the characters are. We see beautiful New Zealand, which is amazing. Um, I wonder how um, how New Zealand native Peter Jackson pitched that, but he got what he wanted. Um, so it's just, there are some shots that, uh, that really stuck with me. Um, there was one, I think there was actually a list that came, came up on Twitter not that long ago, um, a couple of days before we're recording this. And I was like, wow, my, my actual favorite shot is literally like on that list. That's super cool. Um, so that is, that's truly wonderful. I know these films were, um, were such a good product of their time when it came to that, especially when it comes to the perspective of, you know, the giant of the Gandalf um, in juxtaposition to the height of the hobbits. That's super cool. Um, in terms of storytelling, my preferred film is The Fellowship of the Rings, if I had to pick a favorite. Um, I think the introduction of seeing all these characters and seeing how they, they bond um, is truly wonderful. Um, I really do love that, um, when we can see characters, uh, really just get together and work toward a certain goal. And it's, it's just so fun to see. Um, it's also like kind of an easy to swallow thing when it, um, a person like me who doesn't generally go for high fantasy. Um, and, Overall, in the series, I will say I did like it, even though this isn't something I normally seek out. Um, as far as the other two films go, um, I did like how when you really take the effort to watch all three of them in one sitting, you're truly watching a full and complete story. Um, I know this is not the best comparison, but if you were to do this with, um, let's say, the Harry Potter films, each movie technically has a beginning and an end. But with this, it truly does feel like it's a full and complete story because one character, you'll you'll be seeing kind of like a running gag from one film to the next. Like, for example, um, 
Legolas and Gimli, two characters whose names I know, throughout all of the films, they uh, <laughs> have a head count of, of how many enemies they kill and they keep it up as a competition. And they do that in the two towers. And then that also continues into the final battle of Return of the King. And that's so funny that it's an extra effort is made for us to see that they're still doing this friendly competition as they're, you know, working obviously towards something serious. And I thought that was pretty fun. Um, and then uh, I got to say, also one of the things that kind of put me off of these films when I was younger is uh, Gollum slash Smeagol, super hard for me to understand. Um, so now, as I was watching them now that I'm older, it's it's extra double concentration to make sure I really just am getting every single thing that he's saying, because um, it's either Andy Serkis doing a voice or like they do a sound effect. But man, that is just it's it's not like it's not very pl pleasant to try to concentrate on. But that is very obviously the point of his character. Um and uh, the Two Towers was super cool. Um, I will say my favorite scene from that is when we see Legolas treat a shield like a surfboard. And I was like, that's awesome. And then the a climax of Return of the King, the last probably hour is uh, my favorite of that film. Um, and yeah, so it was like truly sitting down and watching these films and learning to appreciate what they are um, was definitely an experience. So those are... Those are my opening thoughts. Yeah, so uh, something that I feel like everybody uh, had mentioned, uh, I know, Anna, you didn't hit on it specifically, but uh, the Hobbit films, thinking more about them, because I guess I'm the only one who's seen all three of them, uh, they do include both Ian McClellan as Gandalf and Orlando Bloom as Legolas. And boy, they are both like a good 12 to 15 years older in yeah, those films. I, and they're supposed to be many years younger. And oh boy. It's even weirder for Gandalf because he's not really <laughs> supposed to age. I mean, he like, you know, he's, he ages so long <laughs> that like there shouldn't be a 10 year difference between anything. Um, but I that was one of the biggest things that I noticed when I was watching it today was that he just sounds so much older, which is, you know, unfortunate and whatever. Um, I also didn't know that uh, Elijah Wood showed up randomly for the kind of prologue to that. You know, yeah. There's, there's, there's the uh, Gollum makes an appearance in the film as well. Yeah, so. it's just so weird to think that like a film adaptation of The Hobbit would have fan service that ties into the Lord of the Ring. You know, like it should be the other way around, but it's it, whatever. I think the other part that makes it so hard to stomach is because it was so, so much longer down the road. Like Orlando Bloom was like peaking during Lord of the Rings. Like he was in both Lord of the Rings and the Pirates of the Caribbean original trilogy. Like he was on top of the world and then he did Elizabeth Town and his career was over. Um, so, <laughs> I can give him a little bit more credit than that. <laughs> uh, I mean... If you look at his credits, he's done a lot of shit here recently. Like, he's doing B movies now, so... He's um, on that show that haven't... Haven't you said that was good? Someone I know said Carnival Row was good. I don't know. Anyway. Oh, well, maybe he's going to make a comeback at some point, but... Yeah, he's, but... Uh, 
he he's been in a he's been in the dumps here recently. Uh, <laughs> look at some of the posters of the movies he's been, and he's like, oh no, it's those movies. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, so yeah, but it, it it was, I guess it was okay. But I actually think he looked worse in in the uh, prequels than Ian McClellan did because it felt like at least he was already old. And like, even though, yes, his voice is a little bit different, like, oh, okay, it's still old Gandalf. And like, Legolas is supposed to look like a, a elf who does not age. Right. And yet you're like, who's this guy who looks like a somewhat fatter 10-year-old version of that tiny elf who's supposed to never age, who's supposed to look like he's about 19? What's going on? Ugh. Um, what... Okay, since I didn't quite mention The Hobbit, I didn't even know there was a third Hobbit movie until you brought it up, Alex. I thought... Oh, some... it's, a, it, it, it's terrible. It's really bad. <laughs> I'm wondering if that's why, like, I didn't hear anything about it because I remember when Desolation of Smog came out because, like, Benedict Cumberbatch was in that, and I think that came out... Yeah. When... And, and, and that's, that wow. one's legit good. It is okay. by far the only good film of that trilogy. I mean, the first one's okay, uh, but the second film, The Desolation of Smog, is legitimately pretty good. Uh, well, the third film is absolute shit. <laughs> no, but I literally had not heard anything about the third film. So I guess I well, truly... That's, I, guess, I guess that's a good thing for the film for you then, because uh, <laughs> it didn't make its way to you. <laughs> okay. uh, if, 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 yeah. It's for your I, benefit. I, yeah. I don't, I don't, I, I don't I've never met anyone that I've talked with that series about that thinks that movie's good. Um, and, and that's really incredible because people just throw rose petals at this series, whatever it is, whether it is the Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, even though they know those films are bad, but you bring that up and they're like, Oh no, that title was a bad start. And then we have whatever that was. It's not, it's not good. I think the Battle of Five Armies is a masterpiece. Okay, Tucson. I've never <laughs> seen the film. <laughs> uh, so, um, in terms of specific things about the trilogy that everybody likes and wants to talk about, where where do we want to start there? I, guess, I would like I no. would like to say something really quick. I like the inconsistency of Legolas's uh, colored contacts because Orlando Bloom's eyes are brown and they couldn't get those to look right all the time. So <laughs> someone can take the lead now. <laughs> it's the same thing that happened with Robert De Niro and the Irishman. It's fine. That's unfortunately actually probably true. That too. What's that? He has colored contacts in that movie and they differ from shot to shot. It's not good. Oh. Uh, I'll leave it at that. Okay. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on there, but. <laughs> uh, I was going to say one thing that I think is underrated about The Lord of the Rings, or at least specifically these three installments uh, and books, is that I think one thing that I kind of forgot until I rewatched it is that it does romance very well, which I think is an underrated aspect because the high fantasy sometimes uh obscures uh some of the more emotional beats uh especially because i think there's an unfair stereotype of like high fantasy being a not even a male's boys club or anything like that but you know just being that that's who i've seen bro out about it whatever but one thing i like is that throughout the entire trilogy of of 
these three movies at least, there is a component of love that is always persistent, uh, and it kind of slowly comes out because it's not like the first movie is all that concerned with it, but it at least lays the seeds for... I mean, obviously, it starts in the very beginning with uh, Aragorn and Liv Tyler's uh, elven character, who I forgot her name. Uh, but there are Arwen. Other... Yes, Arwen. That's right. Yeah. Um, and... Look at Anna. Yeah. yeah. Really just did, did her homework. Ever since Nick <laughs> roasted me before we started recording. Yeah. I'm even a comeback. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> All right, oh, then keep your secrets. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, but I will say, throughout the entire series, and especially as the series gets closer to its conclusion, where a lot of characters start to really evaluate their life and what's important to them uh, on the eve of a you know coming battle, I I really find a lot of these disparate threads to be pretty affecting. Whether it's uh, uh, Mary's kind of slight crush on um, what's her name and uh, <laughs> yes, her. or uh, you know uh, Sam and uh, whatever her name is Rosie something Rosie Cotton come on now yep Rosie Cotton I, yep sure uh, these aren't real names uh, and <laughs> And so on and so forth. I, I think it's such a easy thing to shoehorn into narratives like this. But what I like is that it never, like, it kind of, it's paced in a way in which you know that it's not so much that this is the point of the story, but technically speaking that this is what the characters are fighting for. So it's a good kind of trade-off between screen time uh, to remind you that these are all humans uh, without getting bogged down into actually, you know, uh, stretching out something that would be kind of paper-thin on, uh, on a pass-through. So I don't know. That's just a, it's an underrated aspect that I picked up on this time around that I thought worked much better than I thought it would. I, I would agree. Uh, I do really think that the Liv Tyler and Viggo Mortensen romance throughout the film, uh, films, pardon me, is, is actually done very well, um, yeah. mostly because of the way that it's paced. Uh, it, it's very much uh, just a small background story, but is always kind of lingering there uh, throughout this uh, entire trilogy, which is fantastic, I think. And also, too, it has such a fulfilling conclusion uh, with everything that happens in The Return of the King, uh, especially when Elrond seems to finally stop being a dick um, and, and understand that his, his daughter has to follow. Although I will say this uh, about Elrond, and this is a kind of a, a side note from uh, the romance aspect, but um, boy, he was holding on to that sword for a long time in his cloak before he finally gave it to Ergord in that tent because he's sitting there and he's like, look at this reveal. I, I don't know. Very bizarre. Like, Hold on, that, I think that... I have some pocket check. Oh, what is this? <laughs> this is the rebuilt sword. Yes, this will command the haunted mansion characters later. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I mean, come on, that yeah, is exactly what they look like. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll give you that. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, but something else I, I do want to definitely mention. Uh, and I just lost my train of thought. That is fantastic. Oh, no, I got it. Um, 
weirdly enough, I think the sound editing here is really next level. And not just because of uh, some of the way that we hear either people running across the hills, which obviously you get plenty of running and galloping of horses uh, throughout this and also with the sound effects. But uh, there is a next level just touch to my heart moment uh, towards the end of the Fellowship of the Ring when the lead orc in that film gets his head cut off by Strider, uh, also known as Aragorn, and we hear it hit the ground and it sounds like just a perfect sack of beans hitting the ground. I don't know. There's just just <laughs> something about the way that it splats that I was just like like clapping inside of my brain being like, ooh, that was fun. Then it touched your heart. That's, that's, that's very sweet. I know it's nothing. Nothing like seeing an orchid get tap, uh, decapitated and hearing its head splat against the ground with a very specific tone. Yeah, here I am trying to pontificate about how love conquers all, and like, <laughs> my heart goes pitter patter when the heads go splitter splatter. Oh man, I to to I guess go upon that um that sound editing the score of this of not this but these films um is absolutely striking um i know a lot of people are always commenting about john williams and star wars has the best um the the best score and everything like that for like a, a classic cult film if you will um but truly, I think the the music plays so perfectly with with a variety of scenes, um, and I I keep thinking of hearing that um, very specific like little um, I'm not going to sing it or anything, um, but where Ooh. you can <laughs> oh no I'm not <laughs> sounds like you are <laughs> um, it's a... I, I feel like she's. She's Ron Burgundy and Anchorman pulling flute out. I'm not prepared. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Um, <laughs> um, it's the. <laughs> um, it's I guess like the theme of Lord of the Rings, if you will. Um, but when you hear that start to rise up in any scene, I kind of feel like I'm almost playing a video game of like, oh man, I know that there's something big coming up at this point. Um, and I like the way that the the score really reflects um, it, or even kind of projects like what is is going on, what is happening, um, just so beautifully for this. Um, and I know other films do it well, well too, but um, I think it's very well paced and um, and just placed as well. Um, I agree with you, Sam, um, as far as like where, like the pacing of the film and where we understand where the characters go. I, um, this is totally reflective on me and how quarantine has been going for me. But, um, at the end of, you know, Fellowship of the Ring, um, when Frodo and Sam go on the boat to do their thing and they're like, we need to go to Mordor. And then um, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, they realize what's happening and they're like, we need to save the other hobbits. I definitely shouted, new objective. And then whenever 
anything in the battle happened previously with the orcs and like, you know, Legolas did something or he did something cool with his bow or um, anyone was doing something cool. I definitely was like one skill point. So it was just, <laughs> it was, it was so cool to see kind of how that's, that's kind of the basis for, for so many things. Um, and then also I'm a huge fan of the love story here. Like I, remember very clearly also return in the return of the king because this was of course the most recent film that i watched um eowyn is clearly in love with aragorn that's made very obvious that's truly all she wants and she has a king of a father that's like no you can't do this like you can't go to war like you can't marry a man like that i think the idea is that she needs to like marry someone else or something to keep the the monarchy you know what it is um and aragorn realizes that he like after one of his dreams and arwen shows up he realizes that arwen is truly his love and we find that we end up to get that they end up together um he tells eowyn what you what you want it what you want is just a shadow and a thought and i cannot give that to you and it's it i got like big shakespeare energy from that because what's like more um what's more satisfying to see on screen than like unrequited love and then we still end up seeing those two characters like achieve what they want to achieve anyway like truly outstanding i yeah. i would agree um by the way do you know what i call big shakespeare energy what's that nick big willy style okay uh, um, what uh, no will hey. smith fans out here <laughs> I, I know there's one person that definitely is. <laughs> oh, man. Um, Anna, for whatever reason, you just mentioned, I hate to keep going back to Orlando Bloom. You just mentioned, <laughs> you, you just mentioned Legolas. Not and, a and, and, topic for you. Well, I, I actually don't mind him. I, I, he's a terrible actor, but I, I don't really mind him. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I do love that. They're like, you're going to have to shoot your arrow at a ghost that is definitely a ghost. And he's like, this will work. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, boy. What a, that, 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 that must have sucked being like, well, this is definitely not going to work. You definitely will look like a fool. The points of comedy in Return of the King were pretty good. Like that one was, uh, mm -hmm. that was a good scene. And then when Gandalf and Pippin, it's Pippin, right? Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah, they they looked so alike. I had to. It took a while to differentiate Gandalf between them. And Pippin, yeah, they do. And, no, <laughs> <laughs> Pippin and Mary. Okay, um, they go to this this lord who ends up being who's Boromir and Faramir's father, and uh, Gandalf Boy, is like those, those, those names. Pretty much had not a lot of variety there. Hello, no, Faramir. And Boromir. Yeah, that kind of reeked of white nationality to me. <laughs> well, he kind of seems like it. I mean, that guy's um, literally trying to burn him and his non-dead son in the oh middle of God. the fucking room. <laughs> oh, uh, 
Also, so, there, 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 there's really nothing better when Gandalf just yells at him, Stuart! <laughs> he's trying to talk about how he's the king. <laughs> uh, what a piece of shit. <laughs> so I liked when Gandalf was telling Pippin, don't mention this, don't mention this, and don't mention this. And then Pippin keeps agreeing. And then he's like, actually, it's just better if you don't talk at all. <laughs> and Pippin is like, okay. <laughs> Like, I think we've all been Pippin at one point or another. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In, in terms of the comedy, too, uh, definitely in Return of the King, for me, is the most noticeable. Uh, where There's the early moments, especially with Gandalf, where he's he's got a lot of good little quips, especially when he walks up and the clearly high Pippin and Merry are talking about all of the adventures that they just had, and he's just like, mm, hobbits. Yeah. Uh, I- and, and, and then we see right after that uh, Gimli having one of I think the funniest lines of the entire trilogy when they're trying to talk about where Saruman is and he's like let's just get his head and get on with it <laughs> that's pretty good uh, well, and I will say one more thing about Gandalf uh, as far as the comedy being slightly escalated in the third installment but he's also it's a good match because he's in the perfect uh, situation in which the comedy would make sense because ultimately for a long duration of uh, the third film even more so than the previous film Gandalf is a glorified babysitter you know because he's essentially having to take Pippin over there and then he's trying to get uh, the you know John Noble's character of Denethor and what not to do the right thing and then of course the mm-hmm. men uh, that are not that are either allegiant to him or not. So it, it, it's a lot of, like, plate spinning. So every time he says, like, a funny quip or whatever, it really does feel like he's exasperated, and it doesn't feel like a, I don't know, the way that Marvel will sometimes do it, where it's like something super serious is happening, and freeze, joke time. You know, it's just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, it, it didn't really bother me at all, and I was kind of surprised by that for some reason. Also, I want to give a shout out really quick uh, to one of the, this is going to seem random until I tie it in. Uh, it already does. Don't worry. <laughs> one of the best shows currently on television is DC's Legends of Tomorrow, which uh, centers around a bunch of B superheroes who go around in a spaceship that can travel through time. And there was a very funny bit in season three where a main character who's never seen, he's just kind of this, kind of like a Sauron type, like where he's not a real person, he's just this figure, but he has a voice. Uh, They, of course, have him voiced by John Noble, because he's got a great voice for that, you know, and whatnot. And so at one point, they need to trick another villain in the show by somehow convincing them that the villain that John Noble voices uh, is, like saying whatever they want him to say so they pull an oceans 12 and they fly in their time machine back to 2002 and they knock on john noble's trailer as he's filming the lord of the rings and they ask him to read the lines that are on a paper and it just cracks me up every time because he's still he's they dress him up in his denethor outfit and everything (laughs) wow so anyway i always love tv still going strong yeah (laughs) what's the um this is really random, and this is obviously different, but Nick, do you know what the film is that Marlon Brando uh, dressed up as uh, his character from The Godfather that he was in with um, 
uh, Matthew Broderick, like in the early nineties. Um, I don't. Do you know? Um, do you know? What I'm talking about. I know what you're not? talking about, but I don't remember off the top of my head. But I can yeah. do a little search of Rooney. I'm a librarian. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's obviously not. It's it's, I, I, it, it's it, it's usually funny, like you're describing though, in a cameo. But I'm pretty sure that was like a full feature where he's just uh, like, "Let's go get this cash grab." Yeah, I mean that's that's sucky, whatever. But uh, but yeah, John Noble literally just is completely game, and he like stumbled out of a trade. Like, I I, I have to be over in, in the castle in in ten minutes, and they're like, "I know, just just read this piece of paper." He's like, "What? Why? Why should I do this?" <laughs> uh, let's see. This is good podcasting. Oh, it was the freshman. Interesting. Yep, that's that's all I got. (laughs) (laughs) Did we lose Alex? Maybe. Oh, we did. Oh, we did again. Hello. Huh? How are you? I'm sorry about that. I don't know what happened. No, My bad. Uh, randomly, just to let you know, it was uh, a movie called The Freshman. Uh-oh. Did we lose him again? No, I'm here. Oh, okay. I'm here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I expected so sorry, rapturous uh, applause. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I'm not sure what happened. I just I was just sitting here, and then it just said, "You've been dropped," and I was like, "Oh." Yeah, it did that to me uh, early. Like that's what had happened to me. Whatever. What's weird though is I use this exact new technology, like Google, whatever, with Dan twice <laughs> already, and it didn't have that. So I didn't. That's I don't know if it's just tonight or whatever. But anyway. Okay. Yeah. Well, sorry about that. Nope. Carry on. You're good. Uh. I don't know what we were talking about outside of me randomly plugging a superhero show. Yeah, I was going to say, you were going on and on about John Noble, so... Hey, he's great. Uh, we just let it happen. Yeah. Yeah, so whoever wants to take the next uh, feed, go for it. So, um, had I not had the um, lovely companionship of my boyfriend throughout these films, um, really I wouldn't... In life, under- too, when you think about it. I- True, truly, honestly. <laughs> um, I wouldn't have understood until the beginning scene of Return of the King truly what Smeagol Gollum was, uh, who he was as a character. Um, it's alluded to briefly when um, Frodo says, you know, I'm sure you weren't too far from a hobbit at one point. And that's, you know, to some degree, that's kind of all we get. Um, And then in the beginning of Return of the King, because I literally have never seen, like, that scene before, I was, like, like, shocked. Like, I couldn't believe it. That is, um, that is who Smeagol was. And that is um, the evolution of his character, the beginning of the evolution. And when the shot of the ring is like in that little Creek, that's the Mm -hmm. same shot that's used in the beginning um, prologue. Um, 
that is told about the ring. And I honestly, I thought that was so cool that we don't see that until um, the beginning of the final film, especially because Smeagol is so central to um, the final film. Actually, he's pretty central to kind of the whole thing, but I mean, it's definitely his, his peak, you know, until it isn't anymore, so. He's, I was gonna say, he's <laughs> one of the few characters that are integral to both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, so. And, mm-hmm. um, I will yeah. say that the opening to Return of the King, the scene you're describing is, one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie, and it's another reason why I think that movie is just crackerjack because uh, it's it's such a good opening uh, in that before the third movie, the uh, the previous two movies had not really played with the chronology all that much. It was very straightforward. Even the opening of the first movie was. Uh, while it was a flashback, it you know had a narrator and it kind of just stepped you through it. Where with the arrival of the beginning of that scene, it's almost sets the stage for this extremely emotional movie. Where even though there's going to be big battles and you know uh, climactic moments, what it's really about is human uh, corruption and greed. And I think starting it with that scene, especially without really announcing it. Um, it, it's just such a great move and it really, uh, it really works. Yeah. I mean, the, the human corruption and greed is really, I think, um, gotta be the central theme of, of these films. Um, especially when we see the end there that I think is actually pretty heartbreaking. Uh, the fact that. Uh, Frodo never decides to drop the ring uh, into uh, the the lava in, in Mordor. Pretty yeah. much, um, that that is so hard to cope with, as he is without a doubt the lead protagonist throughout the entirety uh, of the films, and yet um, it's almost just a mistake that it falls in at the end, uh, which is. Um, kind of tough to to deal with because I, I will say uh, in terms of the story, which at least on film is very much um, trying to have uh, a lot of moments to, to bring out the good in people um, that does give a, a really unfortunate glimpse into this idea that uh, some of the things that happen in this world that are good um, don't happen for the reasons that you'd think. And it's a, uh, an unfortunate truth of uh, of the real world. It's also, too, though, how you interpret that final scene, which is to say that you're absolutely right. However, there's another thing that's at play, which is I think the uh, the the overriding theme of the entire trilogy is just that uh, we as a species or just even as individual human beings are function better connected with each other because we're always going to be susceptible to those kind of moments and to that kind of corrosion of our morals and our soul and whatnot that you know love does conquer all because it's what will technically uh pull you back from the cliff and obviously that's the entire moment there with frodo is that it's Mm -hmm. sam who essentially by virtue of his actions and being the outsider perspective who gets to step in and it's impulsively so it's only because he cares about Frodo so much that he can't stand to see what would happen next um, and I, I think that's the other thing is that 
you know, in a movie called Return of the King, even uh, Aragorn kind of learns that the true measure of a king is how well he collaborates with others because, you know, about midway through, he's going to once again go off on his own, but now his new best buds, Legolas and Gimli, are like, no, you don't, and... uh, and you know and he quickly accepts that and i think that's kind of the through line for me or even you know uh, eowyn and uh, mary ganging up and realizing that their common uh prejudice perspectives uh that society has on them can link them together and, and so on and so forth i think that's the thing is while you're absolutely right it's very much about how anybody has the capacity for corruption uh it it almost does come down on the side of but that corruption can always be fought and won against with love and and some kind of care yeah well well said um i I would i would definitely agree um and i definitely think like there's multiple um perspectives at play throughout the film especially when we reach the conclusion of this i mean it, it is it's always heartbreaking for me when we have that final scene, um, which is which is epic. I mean, the finale, the final hour and a half of Return of the King, because we're at really um, not the climax, but we're at the Battle of Mordor for about a good hour and forty minutes uh, in that final film, which is which is good and bad. I mean, I love it. It is you know you're you're reaching that point probably about an hour in, you're like, oh, we're already here. Oh, there's two and a half hours left. Um, but there are so many moments in the return of the King that, that just land for me. Uh, and especially that last scene, uh, in the actual final place where they have been wanting to reach this entire time. Uh, and and they're on the cusp. And, um, when Frodo turns around after he's trying to drop it, uh, down into, uh, the bottom of Mordor. Um, is it, just such a such a gut wrenching moment, um, and then Sam obviously has his big shouty moment where he's just uh, I won't say beside himself, but uh, he's also wrecked because this journey has been made, and and not that it's not for nothing, but um, the ring is still showing its power even when you've reached the final conclusion. Uh, and, and it's it's a really powerful scene and, and definitely uh, something to see. And also, too, um, the the Gollum look of him and the joy that he has when he, like, hugs the ring as he's falling to his death. What a what a creature that is. And you know what? Um, we talk about the scene with Smeagol, but um, I don't think that was a good person. So I think that's why he... Uh, had the ring and then evolved He's into more that susceptible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he just, it just evolved into that really shell of a, of a person and this weird creature where, I mean, we see Bilbo and obviously he's just kind of like, Oh, my life is great. Look at this ring I found. Um, but yeah, we see him. He's almost like looking better than he ever was when he's a hundred and something years old. Um, he's full and then of life, he... even as he creeps closer towards death. <laughs> I will say too, I've never really thought much about it, but when we see old Bilbo at the end of Return of the King, holy shit, does he look just like Dame Judy Dench? And it is really <laughs> off-putting. <laughs> like I'm talking about 
Circa cats or no no. Like, like as soon as he came on screen, I'm like, oh my god, why did she get roped into this? Yeah. <laughs> I I will say one thing about Bilbo is that the scene and really there's got to be at least kind of one moment in each movie, but the the major one for me uh, in Fellowship of the Ring where when Frodo meets up with Bilbo at uh, wherever Rivendell where the elves live and whatnot mm-hmm. um, the scene in which they're talking privately and uh, Bilbo's like you know fucking Beetlejuice face comes out uh, <laughs> when he wants the ring. That's the perfect way to describe it. And I will say a quick interjection that the first time I watched that movie, I was absolutely terrified of that face. And I hated it. I agree. And that's why I find it so weird that the trilogy in general, with that being probably the big shiny example, is not afraid to not like even just have a jump scare, but to actually take the... uh, like terrifying aspects seriously and i think that's because peter jackson technically was a horror director before he did lord of the rings but uh it's all the more effective that even today when i watch that scene it's not that i know it's not coming or even that it like gets me in the jumping way but it's still an effective startling and uncomfortable scene it's it's very good um, I really liked that scene too, and that was um, super unexpected. Um, so when I saw that for the first time, I was like, "Wow, that's crazy!" But then Gollum is like that. Does that mean blah blah blah? And then of course that all gets answered um, pretty quickly. Um, and we do see the resistance of Frodo saying no uncle you can't have the ring you can't touch it right now no but then it's like specifically when it comes to frodo and bilbo and this this goes without saying and i'm sure that uh i'm sure that's what this is gonna be um bilbo has a birthday and he leaves frodo this you know um this ring and then he doesn't leave the ring gandalf forces him to give it because he literally tries to leave with it once, tries to leave with it twice, and then I think it's almost like a third attempt when he's finally about to walk out the door again. I was like, yeah, you still have it. So, also, too, fun fact about yeah. that, a uh, little, little piece of filmmaking magic that I thought was interesting uh, when I was reading about this, these films, um, when he drops the ring and it just bounces once and then sticks to the floor, they actually did that by having a magnet under the floor to make it have that effect. So uh, I thought that was wonderful. That's pretty adorable. I thought that was mm-hmm. cool too. I also read that fun fact. Um, but thank you for uh, interjecting. I like that word. Um, <laughs> and correcting me. Okay. Um, because, I mean, I'm going to need it. Um, and Gandalf forces Bilbo to leave the ring. And then Frodo ends up with it. And, you know, fast forward... Um, Bilbo's at the Elvish city, excuse me, I don't remember the name. Rivendell. Rivendell. I remember that. Arendelle. Yes, okay, excellent, thank you. To the song of Riverdale, where Archie hangs out. (laughs) (laughs) And and everyone is being just completely murdered by uh, Hugo Weaving's gazes and his extremely... (laughs) 
uh, rough eyebrows that are just killing people with their look. Can I just say, when Hugo Weaving tries to smile in Return of the King during the ceremony, I feel no. like that was like a one-take thing where they were like, all right, so, you know, you're going to smile, and then he goes like, I got it. And then he does that, and they're like, we're, we're, we're not going to fucking get this. Like, all right, let's, let's move on. I... It's so true. <laughs> So um, they're in the they're in Arendelle, and Bilbo's like, "Here you go, Frodo." Rivendell. Yes, Rivendell. Sorry, I think Arendelle is the name of Frozen. Damn it. Okay, <laughs> Rivendell. Anna, what Fervendale? Where's that? <laughs> I'm sorry. And then. Um, Bilbo is like, here you go, Frodo. Here's all this cool stuff for your journey. And then he pieces out, and then Frodo deals with all of that. Like, yeah. that's, that's not cool. That's... just kind of a jackass. That's kind of Gandalf's way. He's always like, oh, this needs to be done, but I can't do it because I'm too powerful, I guess. Uh, so let me just find a hapless little hobbit because they're fucking peons. Talk about the fact that Gandalf clearly has magic abilities, clearly. and yet the man decides that he's not going to use any magic when he is fighting people, like yeah, in any of the wars. No. At, at least, at least in the in the first film, it's at least somewhat alluded to that he has a pretty bad drug problem. Um, <laughs> Because I, I wish I was joking, but it's even mentioned, it's I think, by Saruman that he's just like, well, you could have done this, but you just enjoy doing that too much. Yep. yep. I yeah, know that's true. And then also you can technically interpret that the form that he comes back in is maybe not capable of uh, certain things, so to speak. So. I mean, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. More like Gandalf the Lame. Am I right, guys? <laughs> so, um, I agree with what you said, Sam, in regards to, like, well, Gandalf is there. There's, like, he's one of, he's a wizard, and there's only, like, a few of them on Middle-earth. Why can't he just technically do his magic to do everything? It reminded me of the plot hole in Harry Potter when technically after they get the time turner can't they just use that for the rest of the book and then of dude course, okay yeah. let, that's let, just let, what it reminded me of let, let me give you the unanimous number one plot hole in this oh, entire man. series which emily brings up every single time and I, <laughs> I just find it so nerdy and hilarious but she's like why did they just give the eagles to one of those fucking or why did they just give the ring to one of those fucking eagles and have them drop it in the volcano and i was like yeah. Uh, that's it, it would have been a much shorter story. Yeah, it really would have. <laughs> I think those uh, birds are allergic to gold. <laughs> so they would not be the proper vessel for such a mission. So why did they show up at the end to save Sam and Frodo then? And that's flesh. That's different. Completely different. <laughs> and we're going with them anymore. What? Tell Emily oh I, I solved this one. <laughs> I'm sure that'll go over great. <laughs> he fucking said what? <laughs> Who is everyone's favorite um, friendship 
pair throughout the trilogy? Probably me and Alex. <laughs> oh, buddy. Oh. This made me smile. You don't even know. Did you did you mean in the movie? <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. Uh, that, that, that's pretty good. I I uh even though I'm I'm shitting on Orlando Bloom a little bit, uh I'm definitely a huge fan of Gimli and uh Legolas. Um I, I do like their banter throughout. I do really enjoy um the uh orc killing uh tally they have throughout and i think they do bring a, a really light-hearted and also different perspective uh to these films because we have that awesome introduction that i mentioned and a couple of you guys have talked about it too uh with the cape planchette intro at the beginning of fellowship and we get this idea of of these different groups of beings that we have um that were given different rings and Obviously, they didn't know what kind of rings they really had because there was the one ring and they're all stupid. Um, but there's <laughs> these different beings that are uh, separated and, and almost segregated. Uh, well, definitely segregated. And when you have uh, the dwarf and the elf who, who seem to be on separate groups uh, early on, uh, and then they develop the kind of kinship uh, that leads to that incredibly emotional scene at the end of Return of the King um, where Gimli makes the mention about him not looking at him as something uh, I don't remember exactly the term but he, he he says that he's not he doesn't see him as that he sees him as a friend um, that's a that's a mm -hmm. that's a like watery eye moment uh, that, that really does go back to what Nick was talking about about this idea of, of beings and humans and people uh, needing to be with each other and working with each other towards a common purpose um, and how important that is. And I think even though they are definitely background characters, um, we see two people from very different backgrounds really having this this kinship together. And, and that's why, for me at least, they're, they're my favorite duo. That still only counts as one. <laughs> that... uh, I, I, I do love the Gimli when he's He's so embarrassed, but he just wants to get over it. He's like, toss me. And he's, like, <laughs> he's like, toss me. And then Aragorn just like like half smiles, like, okay. <laughs> yeah, but I kind of like how before he even grabs him, he kind of almost pats him like, oh, buddy. Like, you know, like he's <laughs> actually trying to save face a little bit. It's really cute. Um, I also, I... oh, sorry. What sure. were you going to say? Sure. I was going to say my favorite duo. Yes. Um, you can't is, say me and Alex. I already said that one. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> um, I'm actually, it's Mary and Pippin. Mm -hmm. um, they just make such, I mean, to me, a very realistic friendship, um, especially when Mary, so after um, Pippin has looked at the, I guess for lack of a better term, the orb, um, and Mary is is quite frustrated with Pippin, and there's that frustration with each other, um, and having to to be apart, and still still being able to competently be themselves and not be you know codependent of each other. But when they come back together um, after everything, of it, you truly see that there's, um, and it's not like a. It's a romance, but not in the sense of like a um, 
not the type of romance you would think. It's more of like a familial love of each other um, and keeping, I guess, keeping the other always in mind whenever you're doing things. Um, and I think that that's, their friendship is just adorable to me. Um, I also love that they are just two small hobbits. <laughs> yeah, and they're really just like, like they're just trying to find food for the whole movie. They're like, when is second breakfast going to be? Doesn't he know about second breakfast? <laughs> um, find find yeah. it very interesting. So they're definitely lighthearted, but they become integral characters, especially in The Return of the King, which is um, not what we have thought of in The uh, Fellowship if you were just watching it for the first time. And even, uh, even Two Towers, technically, what I think is kind of touching is that they're the catalyst for the the trio's trajectory in that movie because it's because it's they decide to go save them which seems very uh uh shall we say emotional based than it does logic for these three guys who are probably more concerned with winning the war and whatnot but they're like let's let's go save these two idiots you know kind of uh but so anyway i like that as well um I, I will say the, the pairing that I like the most, I kind of already alluded to it, is the uh, pairing of Gandalf and Pippin uh, pretty much throughout the entire uh, third installment. I think besides the fact that it's it's a great... Um, it gets off to a great start because of the fact that Pippin, you know, makes that mistake of looking in the eye. So you almost think it's going to be a contentious relationship, but that really dissipates very quickly, even on their very first night uh, when they're there um, uh, at the city. And you see, I think they see for the very first time the volcano or whatever at Mordor like really light up because of what Frodo and Sam are doing over there. Uh, like Gandalf even puts his arm around uh, Pippin almost like a child. And, you know, from that point on, they have a begrudging respect for each other to the point where uh, Pippin, for the most part, from like in the entire third installment is not really screwing up or, you know, messing up or doing anything after that initial, you know, mishap. And um, the fact that Pippin, I think, uh, cares more about these interpersonal conflicts uh, in in the heat of battle than he does about the whole battle, I think is very touching because that's really the kind of kind of a central metaphor there is that, you know, these are all human beings at stake. So when he goes and runs for Gandalf when uh, Denethor is about to burn himself and his son alive, it's just uh, it's such a powerhouse moment for me uh, that it's uh, juxtaposed against battle and whatnot. And, of course, that the two of them are able to uh, save them together because it's even Pippin who who jumps into the fire. So it's just he he comes a long way, but also Gandalf I think knows that and sees that from the very beginning, even when he's angry at him. Otherwise, I don't think he would have even taken him. I yield my time. <laughs> I was gonna say, Anna, you, you you need to give us your uh, your favorite pairing. Okay, cool. Yes, I can do that. Um, this is going to be a very cliche answer, and I know this, but regardless, my favorite pairing is um, Sam and Frodo. Um, uh, I think, like, through actually most of the series, 
Um, immediately post-fellowship, it is just them two. I mean, plus Gollum, but like they're, you know, they clearly are in this together. Um, as we see Smeagol, um, his split personality really begins to trickle through. Um, and then also um, the development of what we see um, toward uh, the end of, I would say middle to end of Return of the King, also a very Shakespearean situation with uh, Miguel um, framing um, Sam, that he ate all the elvish bread, which is apparently this magical bread that is supposed to keep you full for days on end. Smeagol just ruins it and uh, convinces Frodo that Sam is the one who just ate the rest of it. And then Sam later finds out clearly it's not the case. Um, regardless of him, you know, doing his best efforts to say, no, I didn't do it. It's Gollum and Frodo's like, no, Gollum's trying to help us. Um, I thought that was just really well done. Um, so I really liked that element. Um, but I mean, them two together, it's like two peas in a pod. Um, Sam wants nothing but to do, but to help Frodo. And Frodo at the end of the fellowship is just like, I gotta do this on my own. Mm -hmm. You know, Galadriel convinced me that that's the, with her Christmas lights in her eyes, that's just what I do. <laughs> that's an actual effect that they used okay um and sam was like no and he almost drowns because he just wants to help his friend and all the way through the end he's there and then when um they're on the mountain before uh at, at the return of the king they're still on the mountain and they're waiting for the eagles to come because I mean, they don't know the eagles they are going to come. Basically, they're, they're facing their demise. And Sam says, if I was going to marry anybody, it would be her. And I was like, Sam just wants to find love. And then, of course, he does. And it's just, it's so nice. And um, at the true ending, when Frodo ends up going on the boat, because it's like his duty I, I i forgive me i didn't quite understand like the implications of that scene other than He's it was going off to the afterlife he doesn't want to fucking live anymore yeah is, is that what that truly was it was like a nice boat to the afterlife yeah yeah cause that's oh. why gandalf because he's not really there anyway because he kind of only came back temporarily and then bilbo because he's super old but i am with you mm -hmm. anna that that could be made clear to the audience uh whether you read the book or not read the book, the way that they tiptoe around that entire conversation is, is almost bizarre. Uh, Rewatching it, I forgot how weirdly oblique it is uh, to the point where it's, I, I'm with you in that it's genuinely confusing in the way it's portrayed. Uh, but yeah. I'll be really honest that actually after, so I watched Return of the King last night and after I finished the film, I kind of like sat there for a minute and I was like, so why does he get on the boat? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I literally looked it up and I like typed into Google, why does Frodo get on the boat at the end of the movie? Um, and it's interesting because most folks offer the, I guess, solution um, or the conversation rather 
um, that it is going on to the afterlife or something along those lines of that. It's um, a form of like eternal peace um, after everything that he's witnessed and that he could never live a peaceful life um, with all that he's gone through. Um, but also, I mean, there was one that was interesting of like, it's um, someone had mentioned, I know Alex had mentioned previously about um, Tolkien's, um, I think it was World War One um, or World War II. Um, oh, Nick, Nick was mentioning that. Oh, Nick, that, you that, did. That, 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 that oh, was yeah. a major driver of, of his creation of the series. Yeah. yeah. And it's, someone had kind of, I guess, pinged off of that and mentioned that perhaps it has something to do with those individuals that suffer um, extreme PTSD um, and that it's a, a form of being able to kind of provide peace for them because it'll always be, they'll never be able to, I guess, assimilate to, to society again. Um, and I was like, wow, we're getting really deep in here. Um, but it was, um, I definitely feel like if it is supposed to be an afterlife of, of means, it should have just been a bit more blunt of like, your time here is done. Thank you for what you've done. And and then it moves on. But yeah, yeah. I, 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 oh, go ahead, Nick. Well, I was going to say it because it's like, on the one hand, the emotional beats are correct and that like Sam and Mary and Pippin are like crying. Mm -hmm. So it's like they understand what's happening. But let's be real. Uh, those three hobbits, particularly two out of those three, were the dumbest characters in the entire movie. So for them to just innately understand something like this uh, without these characters really explaining what's happening, uh, it's I don't know. For me, that that's what makes the whole thing is like uh, I don't, their reaction is almost off based on the fact that they also think that everyone eats second breakfast so they would also like, <laughs> assume that everyone knows what happens when you get on the white boat like it's just, I don't know. well I, I i guess for 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 me at least from my perspective um and i guess i've never really thought about it being anything other than that um mostly because of the other characters that are involved because i know elrond goes on there as well i couldn't remember um, though why he would like i don't remember specifically why he would be dying I, I i feel like he's not i feel like he's an elf that really oh. doesn't die for thousands of years and he's ready to be done with the shit uh, okay <laughs> um, yeah like he's so it, he's like uh, that, that, my daughter's marrying an asshole <laughs> yes. I, I, I rebuilt that sword, which uh, somehow was as easy as two guys hammering it together. Like, I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> Magical sword, let's sure. assume. Yes, they yeah. find a stump yeah. and a so, hammer, and all of a sudden it's, it's called all good. forging, Alex, and it's a goddamn <laughs> art. Show a little respect. This is true. Have you ever watched Forged in Fire? It's pretty awesome. I have not, because I have a life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm gonna just like kidding. show my nerdism here. No, I that shit does look very cool. I will admit, it's super cool. My dad and I like to watch it together, and just like we're like, man, that that's so cool. Can yeah. you imagine just like taking metal from like your backyard and being like, I'm gonna forge a blade, and I, then I think we found out why your dad likes Lord of the Rings. He just keeps reading the passage about them forging sword. <laughs> 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 I think if I ever went to a Renaissance fair, that would be the first thing I would go to is to define a fan because that's often uh, at those places where somebody brings like a kind of not mini but 
a setup uh, kind of blacksmith. A small blacksmith. Yeah. It is really cool to watch, actually, having gone to see one of, like, a, watching the blacksmith work at, like, the, the run fair um, prior to COVID times. Um, that's probably one of the coolest things to watch. I mean, you could stay there all day if, if you wanted to. No, you can't. Um, though I think they take breaks. <laughs> well, that too. I mean, yeah, obviously. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, so something really quick I want to mention before we go to final ratings um, is the uh, horrifying uh, moment with the spider in the Return of the King and the spider web uh, that uh, Frodo is stuck in. Um, Emily always gets totally creeped out from that, and I don't usually get creeped out by spiders. But there's something about Frodo being stuck in that spider web and him struggling to move through that that just makes me feel just gross. Like, oh God, this is this is a nightmare scenario for anybody. <laughs> it looks like he's like in a little sleeping bag and it's adorable. <laughs> um Yeah, I hated I just hated everything about that. I was <laughs> I every sequence of them with the spider. I don't know. I just Spider's I his name was Tony Shalib, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that monk, that piece of shit. <laughs> um but I mean I thought the CGI on the spider looked cool and like the point of it clearly was to be terrifying. Mm -hmm. Um and the you know Frodo lives, which is <laughs> great. So yeah. Yeah that's convenient by the way. He gets stunned by a spider he's like Oh, he'll just be out long enough so we can take him up to our lair. <laughs> uh, yeah, they make it. They make the orc orcs. Excuse me. Make sure to emphasize that the spider likes to eat hit the victims while they're still alive. Yeah, that's so, unfortunate. yeah, it was it was super gross to hear, and I was like, I hate, I hate this. <laughs> also, too, uh, I think I brought this up in our group chat, but even though he's quite good in these movies. Um, Sean Astin, weird casting choice, because boy howdy, outside of this series, he's had some really interesting roles that are not like this. No, although yeah. they finally like capitalized the it with Stranger Things. Yeah. yeah no, no, he, he definitely had, had a, a moment there where he really fulfilled some sort of uh, a possibility with his talents. Um, but I guess I just feel like I remember Rudy... And also um, his horrendous uh, one episode cameo on the terrible show that I love called Las Vegas. Um, and it is, if you ever get a chance to go back and watch it, it is just one of the worst characters I've ever seen. And it's pretty fantastic. <laughs> and he was in the Goonies. Yes. Yeah. I, okay. I wanted to say he was in the Goonies. In Return of the King, I think the lead orc looked like the the guy from the Goonies. Looks he like, was like modeled in a very similar way. Looked like Chunk. Yes, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, I know which one you're talking about. Okay, see, it wasn't just me. I knew I noticed something. Yeah, there is a uh, really, really kind of awkward moment though um would actually uh, i really do enjoy with that orc that you're actually describing um and uh where he's he's um i think it's when they start launching the heads back at um 
the city and and he's he seems really oddly okay with it i think he says something like release the prisoners uh when they start flinging the heads back towards uh the town and yeah that's that's weird (laughs) so who's ready to go to final ratings okay um you guys mind if i go first sure go ahead okay so (laughs) i I'm a fan of all these films. Um, just to give my ratings out uh, at the start, I give the first two films, Fellowship of the Ring and The Two Towers, three and a half out of five. And I give uh, The Return of the King, which is for sure my favorite film of the trilogy, four and a half out of five. I think all these films are really good, and I think they are a really good one film piece together if you want to watch them uh, as a whole. In I think the four that I've watched this trilogy, I have never watched them probably more than a week apart. Um, and maybe that's a mental thing of me just deciding that I want to watch all of them together. But I also feel like, even though obviously this time I wanted to watch all three of them for the podcast, um, I want to watch the complete story and, and see everything about it. Whereas you could watch some of the Harry Potter films where Uh, It's pretty clear that J.K. Rowling took some liberties from uh, this series in her writing of the Harry Potter trilogy, Voldemort, uh, and other things like that. But, um, you know, those films are are very much, as uh, was alluded to earlier in the episode, can be single-serving films uh, that are enjoyable by themselves. And not that these aren't, but it's one complete story split out between three films Um, And even though there's various things that are enjoyable and definitely different themes in each of the three films, um, they are really a really wonderful put together one story uh, throughout. So the acting here is fantastic. The casting really good. Uh, I joked about uh, Orlando Bloom and also uh, about Samwise Ganji uh, as, as I don't know exactly um, how we decided on some of the casting in this is Sean Astin is a very interesting choice, but um, whoever the casting director was did a bang up job because uh, they really just landed on the right spots for everything. So between the physical elements, um, the setting, the sound editing, the cinematography, uh, the score, the acting, the obviously the dialogue, the story, Um, This is fantastic filmmaking that really does stand the test of time. And um, even though it is kind of silly, something that Emily um, continuously says when we watch these films is fantastic. And I have a different opinion on it, but um, this, I guess, is kind of a random offshoot. But I do love also, too, uh, the the Gollum uh, fighting with Frodo when he has the ring on and you just see Gollum flailing around on top of the volcano towards the end of Return of the King, an interesting moment. So that, sorry, that was kind of a random aside, but these are good films and, and they're great films and they are um, definitely a, a storied piece of cinematic history uh, that are going to be there for a long time, well past uh, our, our times of talking about movies here on this podcast. So well done films definitely worthwhile and uh, definitely a place uh, in my heart and in, in, in film history. So three and a half for both Fellowship of the Ring and the Two Towers and four and a half for The Return of the King 
which I think is just a marvelous film. And one final thing I'll say about The Return of the King, I one of my favorite shots in all of film history happens in Return of the King. And it actually is when um, the three uh, amigos, <laughs> um, Sam, Frodo, and Gollum are climbing up the mountain uh, and we see uh, sort of the gates outside of Mordor behind them and they have that weird green glow to them, almost looking like the Emerald City. Um, the shot looking down as they're climbing up the mountain with the green glow uh, and the gates behind them is just such a beautiful moment uh, and just such a, a, a pleasing uh, image to look at. And every time that I see it on screen, I think about what a great look that is in terms of the setting, the coloring, um, the shadowing, and just everything about it. So I'm a huge fan of these films and I'm, I'm glad that I came around after uh, many years of thinking that they'd be too nerdy for me. So I'll move on to whatever let's go next. I'll go next. I will say that I had a lot of fun revisiting them because it's been uh, quite a while since I've seen all three. And um, I was very surprised as someone who doesn't really care for high fantasy, despite the fact that I read high fantasy the most when I was a kid, um, is that all three of these held up, uh, mostly in the early parts of the trilogy, I think as uh, as cinematic spectacle, but very good uh, cinematic spectacle. Uh, so the first two movies for me are kind of a three out of five. I very much enjoy them and, and like them and I think they're impressive in their own right even when they're not quite my thing but then I still find myself quite uh, emotionally more invested than I thought I would be by the end because that last film uh, Return of the King is uh, four out of five stars for me as I think it really does pull the curtain back just enough to actually allow these characters to have the emotional catharsis that they had been working towards uh, for a cumulative six hours prior uh, to that third installment. And um, I just think it's a, it's a very good conclusion. It's been a while. I mean, it, it really went against the trend, too, back then. I mean, you had things like The Matrix uh, expanding into a trilogy, and while I realize that the difference there is glaring as far as one being an original property, being thought of as they went, and then the other being this being, you know, something with existing, but that was kind of a current trend of, like, a movie would come out, it would be amazing, and then, like, the sequel or the third film in particular would just be god-awful, and um, that's just not the case here with uh, The Lord of the Rings, because, honestly, endings are almost rarely satisfying, even when you like them. There's something about the fact that it's over that kind of sours any goodwill that you may or may not have, but Return of the King really does kind of rebuke that and shows in a very beautiful light how... The ending of this story is uh, worthwhile and uh, is where the real magic happens. So uh, three out of five for the first two and four out of five for Return of the King for myself. I'll go next. Um, so in general, I find these films just so delightful. Um, there you can 
have them on like in the background as you're doing things and sometimes just randomly get swept up into them. Um, but also you can like I did this this week, um, you can sit down and just engage with them. Um, and I I absolutely love the storytelling um, and how there's a variety of narratives that we get to listen to um, throughout all three films. Um, and we get to follow these characters on both a physical journey as well as an emotional journey. Um, and really as they, they find themselves and they, you know, become closer with one another through everything. Um, there's incredibly powerful, um, I guess, themes that you can, or themes and messages that you can find within this too. Um, I think something that, that I enjoy about these is that you can almost talk to anyone about Lord of the Rings and they may have never read the books and may have never seen the movies, but they can grasp the understanding of what the story is without having to read a full synopsis. Um, they completely, you know, at least the people that I've engaged with about it, where they may have never seen the movies, but they understand the, the idea of the pop culture reference of, you know, having one ring to rule them all. And, um, and I think it's in, incredible that we were able to see a film kind of, or this particular film or films rather, um, peak at a time where cinema was able to utilize CGI technology. So it's not like the, what we would consider maybe like B rated, you know, sci-fi or fantasy films of like the sixties and seventies. Um, but you actually get to feel very immersed in, in the world that's been created um, through the costuming, the makeup, through just characters. Um, while I think there definitely could be um, a couple of tweaks here and there, I know there was one scene that I think of, um, I believe it was in Two Towers. Um, no, it was in uh, Return of the King where um, Frodo gets pulled into the pond um, with all the, the dead faces or the dead bodies. Um, and it felt very um, goofy, I guess, because um, you could tell that it was definitely um, kind of CGI'd and, and kind of put together. But at the same time, I think it really speaks to their, they were, the filmmakers of this were kind of crossing a bridge that had not been really elaborated on in a while, at least for the purposes of high fantasy. Um, overall, um, I would give um, the first film, Fellowship of the Ring, a four out of five, two towers, a three and a half out of five, and Return of the King, a four out of five. Um, I will definitely, now that I have the DVD sitting at my apartment again, um, I'll probably just put these on randomly within the next week or so, just because I, I feel nostalgic about them, even though I just watched them recently. Super cool. All right. Um, okay. So um, I was 
pleasantly surprised at myself for how much um, I enjoyed these films. Um, they are structured, I think, in a way like was mentioned previously by Sam that um, they translate to the screen in a very good way where it's not really going over your head um what is happening and i that was part of my hesitation as well is that um i was afraid that i just wouldn't quite understand um what the main character's motivations were what the goal really was i mean you know run one ring to rule them all there's that and then you know potatoes or whatever um but um this movie lays it out pretty good um and then i think having um, the characters kind of in their own areas, um, the, the main fellowship in different, uh, areas throughout Middle Earth as we go, um, makes it more digestible, um, so that was helpful, um, and you can kind of more focus on, you know, what people are trying to do, so Sam and Frodo are being guided to Mordor, and then, um, Aragorn, um, Legolas, and Gimli, they're doing their thing, um, and, you know, eventually they come across Merry and Pippin, and then they're figuring out what's happening, and then not, you know, until the third film do they find out truly that Sam and Frodo are okay. Um, so it takes a while to get to that uh, satisfaction, um, but, you know, everyone is, for the most part, gets reunited again, and that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, I, I gotta say, Fellowship is still my preferred one out of all of them. Though Return of the King comes in such a close second just because that conclusion is uh, of the series is so satisfying. Um, it... it takes a lot of these huge emotional turns, um, especially in the beginning scene that I mentioned previously. And um, we get more of a background on Gollum, which has such a good impact that I think starting, putting that at the beginning of the end, so to speak, I think is a really, really good um, narrative choice. So I liked that. Um, and Power of Friendship, man, like there, there truly is nothing like it. Um, seeing that reflected on film, I think that was my favorite theme um, next to the love story because I do love that Arwen and Aragorn ended up together um, and she sacrificed literally her her choice of eternity to be with the one she loves. Um, I don't want to miss a thing. If only we got a symphony orchestra of that, I would have loved it. Um, yeah, luckily Peter Jackson and the rest of the filmmakers didn't want Steven Tyler anywhere near this. <laughs> um, so but John Noble um, did wear his hair. <laughs> um, so I, again, I think that's a very Shakespearean thing, like, you know, being with one who's forbidden, but that love ends up being the strongest. Um, and that's who you want to be with and everyone ends up happy. Um, but yeah, the theme of friendship I think is so great because um, as was mentioned, you know, earlier um, 
Legolas and Gimli are not letting Aragorn go anywhere by himself, not because they don't think he can do it, but because why why wouldn't they help him? Like they've been through so much. Why wouldn't they just um like be there to help their friend who clearly is trying to get something done? They wouldn't um they they want to see everybody succeed and that's truly the best kind of um relationship to have um with people who you love and people who are you know, truly your friends, truly your fellowship. Um, I'm getting a little bit emotional. It just makes me so happy. Um, so all three films, Fellowship, Two Towers, and Return of the King, I would like to give them a three out of five for my final rating. Woo. Okay, very cool. Um, definitely a uh, unique uh, perspective, I think, from everybody. So, uh Good times, guys. So if anyone out there has any thoughts on any of these films, uh, the Lord of the Ring trilogy, um, or, or any anything regarding Lord of the Rings, whether it be uh, the Tolkien uh, novels uh, or even the Hobbit series, um, always feel free to send them on to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com or try to find us uh, on Facebook or Twitter at filmtankshow. Coming up on our next episode, myself, Nick, and Anna are actually going to be talking about uh, another film from Antonio Campos. As we previously talked about The Devil All the Time, uh, we're going to be talking about the film that myself and Nick saw at Sundance, which is 2016's Christine, uh, the film that surrounds the uh, television uh, anchor Christine Chubbuck and um, everything surrounding uh, her really year journey uh that ended um in definitely uh, a very uh sad place so uh that's coming up on episode 251 as always thank you very much to uh sam shamara for joining us it was uh, really good talking to you again uh obviously we're getting towards the end of 2020 hopefully coming up here a few months from now we can regularly start to hang out again back at the studio uh, when life hopefully starts to get back to normal. I agree. And always thank you for having me and for actually wanting to talk to me and be friends. Um, <laughs> it's always a delight to chat with you guys and, and you too, Anna, as well. It's nice and hopefully, <laughs> well, like all three of you, come and, on and now. Anna. Anna, you're fun too. <laughs> I speak for myself. I miss Sam. I, I don't know about the guys that much. Yeah. You know. Oh, that's good. I haven't I, I haven't seen Anna in a while. We haven't done an episode together in a little bit. So you guys yeah. are kind of regular. Yeah. Okay. That's 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 great. Uh, I, I will say I, I always look back to the time that uh, the four of us and Tussaud went to go see Midsummer in the theater last year and then went to go have drinks afterwards and talk about it. Um, that was just such a delightful time. And I wish that our table discussion could have been an episode because it was just so much fun just talking about movies in general and that movie and our initial reaction from it. I agree that that was delightful. And I honestly, I'll be real about that film. I still think about it from time to time. Oh, like I get random visions of it, and I'm like, "Oh my god, this this movie truly has stuck with me." Florence Pugh is legit. She is yes. a national treasure. Like on her Instagram, when she posted earlier this week, 
everyone's sitting around that table. She's wearing the May Queen's flower headpiece yeah and everyone's got sunglasses and is holding umbrellas to hold off the sun rays from their skin um that's fabulous you really is amazing but yes i think about that often like i want to get together to go to the movies with you guys yeah one day one day maybe if movies are still in theaters Well, what's weird about the HBO Max thing is that they didn't say only HBO Max. They said day one theater and HBO Max, which doesn't mean that I will be going to see any of these in the theater uh, if it's not safe or anything like that. But um, it's a that is kind of an actual important distinction to make that I think a lot of people are not stating. But yeah. No, I I, I agree. It's it's definitely a co-promotion type deal, but... um... At, at the same time, it, it definitely feels like um, a, a pretty major moment in films transitioning from where they have been for our lives and for um, many years before uh, any of us were born to where they're probably ultimately going, which is new releases being released at home um, the day that they come out, which is uh, whether it be right or wrong um that that's coming here down the road um as a mainstream everyday thing for every film so yeah yeah nick nick is 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 crawling up into a ball and and wishing for death (laughs) hearing that but um sorry bud (laughs) it's okay Well, um, from Sam and Anna, Nick, and myself, Alex, thank you very much, as always, for listening to us here at Film Tank. We'll look forward to catching up with you next time. They're taking the hobbits to Isengard. God, 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 God. <laughs> <laughs>